Welcome to the Art of the Christian Ninja Sermon Podcast with Pastor Al Desjardins, a ministry dedicated to helping you find the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. Thank you for listening, and now, here's this week's message. Please open up with me to Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. Luke chapter 8, parable of the sower. I figure this is going to be the last sermon uh, in this series that I've called Building Faith During Difficult Times that I started when when this whole thing started weeks and weeks ago. Um, I think it's time for us to get back into our expositional study of the Gospel of John that we left before that. Uh, you can probably tell by now that my devotions of late have been in the Gospel of John, and it's been such an encourage or Gospel of Luke. I mean, it's been such an encouragement to study my way through Luke and see it section by section, and and do a little bit of reading on it. But mostly, it's been uh, such a blessing to just reflect on it and to ask God to speak through it, not just the study and the notes, but but God, what are you saying to me? Uh, which kind of leads naturally into today's message, which I think is a fitting end to this uh, sort of makeshift series I've been coming up with. Uh, I think it really speaks to where we're at today. So we'll start reading together. Actually, why don't we back up to verse 1? Instead of verse 4, we'll go all the way back to verse 1. It says, Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chizza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, uh, so there's the context. Uh, Jesus, his disciples, and some women who were supporting him, literally the word there is deaconing him, uh, supporting his ministry, were going through the cities and villages, were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and there was a lot going on there. If you actually look at this introduction, uh, you'll see, uh, sorry, I don't know why. It's, I, I missed a screen. I apologize. We'll, we'll get into it, though. Uh, if you look at the introduction in your scriptures there, you'll see that there's a lot going on, actually. It, it looks like an introduction, but I want you to notice a couple things. First, I want you to notice that lots and lots of people are hearing the gospel from Jesus Christ, and villages and cities all over the place are hearing the gospel. And what I want you to notice about that is the diversity of the people that are starting to follow Jesus. Uh, the twelve, as we know, they're already a very diverse group of people. You got scholars, and you got tradesmen, you got a tax collector, you got a religious zealot, you got some singles, you got some married, you got some brothers, younger people, older people, faithful people, skeptical people. It's already a pretty diverse group. Just the just the twelve, but also you can see a diverse group of women there. Mary Magdalene had suffered greatly with mental and physical anguish brought on by demon possession. She was probably quite a social outcast. Contrast her with Joanna, who was wealthy and powerful, a Roman woman whose husband served as a sort of business manager for King Herod. That's a a huge variety of people and huge contrast there. Uh, 
And it shows that Jesus' message, what he was preaching and what he was bringing, wasn't just for a certain kind of people, a certain group. It was a message that was for everyone. The good news of the kingdom of God wasn't for this select few or a certain kind of person. It wasn't just for the poor outcast. It wasn't just for the religious or the scholarly. It wasn't just for the men or just people who all had their act together. When Jesus spoke, the gospel was for everyone. And so we see Jesus on this tour, and he's He's announcing as the coming king. He said, I'm the king. This is my kingdom. He's coming as Messiah. I'm the chosen one. I've come to heal the sick, cast out the demons, show the power of God as Messiah. He comes as the gracious one who didn't discriminate against anyone. As the missionary who needed financial support for his food and travel, Jesus Christ shows himself to be the Son of God, proclaiming the gospel and gathering this huge diversity of followers. I want you to remember that context for the parable we're about to read, starting in verse 4. It says, And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's an important line. Jesus often spoke in parables, uh, little stories that were meant to convey big truths to common people. Now, a a parable isn't a sermon illustration. Uh, The parable was the message itself. Uh, Most often, parables were used to convey one great big truth, but interpreters over the years have seen and rooted out many, many more, sometimes way too many more as they overanalyze every detail. But suffice to say, these are not just simple stories. One commentator I read this week described them as both works of art and weapons of warfare. Parables are powerful. They are the message. In verses 9 to 10, we see that Jesus was asked why he spoke in parables and and what the parable meant. And, And it says this, And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. The word there is, is can be used riddles too. Um, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now what does that mean? Essentially, that people can only know the truth if God reveals it to them. That's what that means. We've studied that a lot of times before. Uh, people love sin and they want to stay in the dark. It requires a miracle of God to shed light into a dark soul, to expose them to the truth, and for them to see their sin, feel the weight of their sin, feel their shame. That requires God to shine light. Unless God shines the light on them, into their soul, into their heart, unless God calls them to himself, unless God anoints them in a special way, unless God explains it to them, reveals it to them, they can't see it. They won't see it. 
That part of, uh, in the quotations that you see there in verse 10 is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, where God commissions the prophet Isaiah to go and preach to the people of Israel. Who will go? And he says, send me. And then God tells him what his ministry is going to look like. He says, you've got to realize that every word you say, your whole ministry, will have no positive effect. His messages, Isaiah's messages, would be absolute truth, the very voice of God. But instead of softening the hearts of the rebellious, they would only harden them further. Instead of opening their eyes, they would shut them tighter. Instead of opening their ears, they would just stuff more cotton in. Instead of repenting and giving their hearts to God, they would just sin all the more, and their hearts would become ever more calloused. That's what Jesus is saying here about why he uses parables. For those who want to know God better, the, for those with whom the Spirit of God is working, who are asking and seeking and knocking, they will receive. They will find. The door will be open to them. But those who don't want to hear it, who love their sin, who love themselves, who feel justified in their actions, who, who don't want to be lorded over by anyone, they're the God of their own life, those parables will only serve to harden their hearts further. Why? As 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Same story, two very different reactions. The story of the gospel, the message Jesus was spreading far and wide to cities and villages, to this diversity of people from everywhere, is a divisive message. We just read about that. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Your enemies will be within your own household. I want you to consider the parable. What's, what's the common factor in the parable? The one thing that's constant throughout the whole parable is the seed, right? What's the difference? What's the thing that changes? It's the soil. Verse 11 says, the seed is the word of God. That's what it represents. Now, every soil gets the same seed. The message isn't changed based on the audience. Jesus didn't tell rich people one thing and then the poor people another thing. He didn't tell the Romans one thing and the Jews another thing. He didn't alter the message to make it more palatable to his audience. He was preaching the same message, the same truth to everybody. Same seed cast far and wide. What was the message? Repent, believe, follow me as your Lord and Savior. Simple. Remember last week's message on Luke 6. How, how did it end, right? It had the, the parable of the two house builders. One built on the rock, which is the person who comes to Jesus, hears the word of God, and then obeys. The other built on sand. He was the one who comes to Jesus, hears the word of God, and doesn't obey. Both hear the same message. To one, it becomes the very foundation of their lives. To the other, it's optional, it's foolish, it's offensive, they reject it. It's not how they want to build their life. And that's how it's always been. From the very beginning of time, that's how the story of the gospel, the good news, the message of God has always been. We see it from the 
beginning of time. We see it through every verse of the Old Testament, every nation that has risen up. We see it through the ministry of Jesus. We see it into the days of the Christian church. There has been one message received very differently by a diverse group of people. Acknowledge you're a sinner. You are doomed to judgment by a righteous God. Repent of that sin by acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, but your only hope is to give up everything. Take yourself off the throne of your life. Cast yourself upon the grace and mercy of God. Trust Him alone for every part of your life. In short, believe what God says is the highest authority for you, the highest good you can know and experience. And then live like it. Same message from Adam and Eve forward. And that message has either enlightened hearts to repentance and humility and fruit and godliness, or it has hardened hearts to hell. Now, you've probably experienced this in your own life, uh, your own heart, or when you've shared the Word of God with others. Right? In your own life, there have been times where you've had to choose between believing the Word of God, doing what it says, or doing things according to your own ideas, your own traditions, your own feelings. This pandemic, it, with all the craziness it's brought, has been this revealing and refining fire that has given so many opportunities to either trust God and do things His way, or not. Maybe you've faced financial struggles. Right? A lot of people these days are facing financial struggles. Uh, losing their jobs, not getting enough work, whatever it is. Now, the Word of God is very clear. Right? Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? Jesus says, listen, it's the unbelievers that worry about this stuff. They're the ones who get anxious. They're the ones who start to prioritize money and security and seeking you know, anything else so that they can find some money. Well, the Christians, the believers, are seeking God. Figuring out how they can live rightly before Him, knowing He'll provide. Their worry drives them to selfish and sinful things. Our faith drives us further into God. That's an opportunity to either trust that God is going to follow through on his promises or not. How have you done in that? Some people have had to face serious difficulties in their close relationships. This time has brought some crazy stuff to relationships. The stress of the lockdown and all it all came with has revealed things about your friends, your family, your church that you may not have known was there. Some new places, news places, I mean, are reporting that there is a surge in divorce filings, a surge in domestic violence, a surge in substance and alcohol abuse because of the pandemic. The U.S. and Canada are facing riots and hyper-politicizing this pandemic. Small cracks in people's lives that they were able to kind of plaster over and pretend weren't there are now cracked and blown wide open. The Word of God says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It says, stay married. Stay married. 
do the hard work of reconciliation. It says, do not get drunk. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Take sin seriously. And this whole pandemic, we've been faced with a choice. Humility before God, getting rid of the alcohol or whatever, getting rid of the computer or the tablet, doing the hard work to love and forgive the people that hurt you, or ignore God. Go with your feelings. Keep turning to substances and anger and bitterness and rage. You were given these opportunities constantly. How did you do? You see, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just, yay, everybody gets saved. It's, okay, I have good news for you. The absolute corruption of your souls, the curse that makes it so you can do no good thing, that has driven you to slavery, to sin and Satan, that curse can be broken. But you're not going from slavery to freedom. You're going from slavery to slavery. Romans chapter 6, verse 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't have to do it. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It's an opportunity to change God's to change lords, to change your boss, change allegiances, change slave masters. It's placed before you. You you didn't have a choice before. Before God was in your life, before you learned about the gospel, you didn't have a choice. You didn't even know you had a slave master. Jesus comes and he tells you how bad off you are, and then he shines a light into your dark heart, and that light illuminates a whole lot of your sin and guilt and fear and prejudice and greed, and you look in there. It's like you're sitting alone, in a pitch black room, and you're eating something. And that's all you've ever known. And suddenly Jesus breaks open a door that you didn't even know was there, and light floods in all around you. And you see that you've been eating muck, garbage, poison. And Jesus says, hey, you don't know it, but you're in a prison right now. You are sentenced to death. I'm here to offer you a way out. And then he presents an option to you. Follow him through the door. Take his path. Go his way. Live under his rules. With him as your ultimate authority. And then he'll cure your poison. But you got to take his medicine. He'll pump your stomach, but it's going to be uncomfortable. And you're going to have to let him. He'll take your punishment for you. He'll take the death sentence for you. But you have to give up the muck, and you have to leave the prison, and you have to call him alone your God. Or, you can tell Jesus to get lost, say he's crazy. I'm not in a prison. Be offended that he would ever call you condemned kick the door closed, embrace the darkness, and stay in the room pretending you were never told the truth. Jesus offers that choice to everyone who hears them. 
Same message, same seed, same good news. Now look at Jesus' explanation of the parable in verse 11. It says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, these are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. I think this parable has a special devotional significance for believers here today. In light of everything happening in our world, our homes, our church, right now, because of late we faced so many issues, so much difficulty, so many trials and tests. We've been given the opportunity so many times to either trust God's word or not. We can see ourselves in the various soils. What a shame to waste this pandemic and the revealing fire it has been if we don't pay attention. So I'm asking you to pay attention. And remember, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he, he's talking to, to his sort of inner crowd, right? He's talking to his disciples here. He's explaining to them. He told the crowd, the vast crowd, the parable, and then his disciples came and was like, okay, what did that mean? And he goes, okay, I'll tell you, right? I'm telling you. I'm letting you in on the secret. But the unspoken question maybe is, okay, why doesn't everyone accept? Why are there different soils? Why isn't everyone accepting this message? Why doesn't everyone just do what God says? I mean, Jesus is awesome. He's powerful. He's gracious. He's kind. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. Uh, he offers salvation from death and hell. His ways is always better every single time. Why would anybody not take him up on this? Wherein lays the difficulty? Why, why would people we know that we love, who are reasonable people, more than willing to trust us in so many other things, have a completely different reaction when we start talking about Jesus or the Bible? Why? Right? You, you can recommend, they'll come to you and you can recommend anything. You should try this recipe. You should try this product. You should go to the store. You should try this restaurant. I think you should read this book. Yeah, for sure. You go, I think God has something to say about that in your life. And it's a completely different reaction. Why? In other words, there's nothing wrong with the seed. And the sower's doing their best to spread it all over the place. So why won't it take root and grow? See, some people who heard the word of God are those whose heart is like a hard path. And the word's bounce right off. you probably experienced that. Maybe you've done that. They hear the words, but their hearts are like pavement. They're like the religious leaders who follow Jesus around to listen to what he had to say, but were only there to criticize and scoff and argue. 
This isn't a, a passive unbelief. This is an active refusal to humble themselves and obey. There's an element of spiritual warfare here because it says that the devil comes and steals away the word so they may not believe and be saved. In other words, these people are, are so adamant in their refusal to believe Jesus, have so completely rejected what he has to say and him, it's like Satan has locked their minds and their hearts and thrown away the key. They are worldly people who believe their own ideas and only have derision for God, Jesus, and believers. I'm sure you've met many. Now, how do you get through to that person? How do you penetrate? Well, how, how would you do it? You know, if, if I gave you hard-packed road and said, turn this into fertile ground, how would you do it? Well, it's going to require something substantial to break through that ground. In our life, that comes in the form of suffering, fear, and facing death. That's the big, heavy, hard tiller. That's the blade. Suffering, pain, fear, and death. And it needs to go through the ground before the healing rains can penetrate. And so what we do is we pray. Send whatever it takes to break that ground. And then be willing to stand with them. For us, now Christians here, I think we can do this devotionally in our own, our own lives. It's not just about them, it's about us. Can you see yourself in the hard-packed ground? Are there parts of the Word of God you just will not believe, you will not obey no matter what? You grade up to that point, nope, skip that part, we'll do the rest. Are there parts of your life that you, that you know don't line up with what God wants, but no matter how many people point it out, how many times God brings it up in your study and prayer, how many messages you've heard about it, how many spiritual authorities have told you to submit to it, there is no chance of it penetrating your life. You've said no. You are doing yourself and your soul and everyone around you damage by leaving that part hard-packed. Freedom comes in obedience. And you're giving the spiritual enemy a foothold on your life and family. Root it out. Figure it out. Where's that hard-packed ground in your life? Then... There are those who are like stony ground. Their hearts are like stony ground, different, different soil. They hear the word, they receive it with joy, but it doesn't take root. Okay, You've met a lot of these people. If you've been in church for more than five minutes, you've met these people. They believe for a while, then they fall away. What causes them to fall away? What does the scripture say? What causes them to fall away? Testing. Right? Difficult times, testing. These are the people who seem like they're Christians, who love worship music, love small groups, love to stand on stage and love to go to the potlucks and love to hang around with other believers. It gives them comfort. It gives them hope. It gives them a sense of peace. They feel loved. They feel accepted. Right? They, they're kind of coated in that smell that Christians give off. They like that smell that Christians give off, and, and they're part of it. But there's two problems. They have no roots and there are some huge rocks in their field. 
The roots represent spiritual maturity. Look, think of Psalm 1, the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. All he, in all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Blessed is the person who takes counsel from the godly, has left the way of sinners, and has given up his pride. He's given up scoffing at God and God's people, and he's replaced that with humility. Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I shouldn't be running that part of my life. Maybe God does have a point. They love God's word. You meditate on it. You study it. You pray about it. And it penetrates your soul and it changes your character and your roots grow deep as you drink from the stream of God's word and God's spirit. But there are those who sound like believers. They learn some of the jargon, they, but they have no roots. The rocks in their field are these false ideas they refuse to give up, sins they refuse to repent from, a sense of arrogance that they keep, believing they are better than everyone else around them. They, they hear the message about repentance and humility and obedience. They hear the same message, but they assume it's for you know, other people. They don't have private study habits. They have very little prayer life. In fact, the only time they do pray is when there are other people around to listen. They don't submit to godly authority. They don't submit to God's word. The only interpretation they want is their own. And then testing comes, right? Parable of the two builders. The flood comes. And they have no framework, no foundation to deal with it. Jesus is supposed to be the answer to all their questions. He's the fixer of all their problems. He's this great gift giver in the sky that makes things better. Christians are supposed to be perfect. The pastor is supposed to be perfect. Everybody's supposed to be great around. I mean, we're Christians. It should be perfect, right? But then God ordains this time of difficulty, a time of spiritual training, of discipline, of maturing, and they say, oh, forget this. Christianity is too hard. That version, anyway, is too hard. Too strict, too constrictive. I'm going my own way. I'm coming up with my own ideas. I'm going to create my own version that I like better. So we get a lot of home churches. And they fall away. I've seen this many times, and I'm sure you have too. There are people who will go church to church to church to church and just cause trouble because they want the church to conform to them not them to conform to what God wants. And when that doesn't happen, they raise a stink. And then they leave and find another church to go and blow up. Can you see yourself in this one? Has this time of testing and trial that we've been going through revealed any weaknesses in you, any big rocks that you've been refusing to deal with? Has it shown you the depth, the real depth of your roots? When the wind started to blow and the storm started to come, did you realize, ooh, 
I have some severe doubts. I have some serious issues with my faith. I got some real problems with my habits. There's some stuff that I need to deal with. Have you seen it? Has God revealed it to you? Don't reject that. That's an invitation to spiritual maturity and to going deeper with God. Don't reject that thought, that conviction, that guilt, that shame that you say, oh, that's not right. Don't give up. Don't quit. Instead, humble yourself. Accept correction. Accept discipline. Find some spiritual authorities to get under and allow God to deepen your roots so that you can face adversity with faith and grace and courage. Don't waste it. Don't waste this time. And then there's the thorny ground people. This is similar but kind of opposite to the rocky ground people. This person also lacks maturity. They might grow a little more than the rocky people, but in the end, they're not much better. They are immature and fruitless. They don't fall away like the rocky people, but they're immature and fruitless. Now, what's the cause of their immaturity? What's the cause of their fruitlessness? What does it say? What causes the immaturity and fruitlessness? Cares, riches, and pleasures. In other words, you know, life. These are people that see their sin. They want to be saved. They come to Jesus. The seed penetrates the ground, and it grows. But you see, God isn't planting just to have a seed sprout. He wants fruit. He's the vine dresser. He wants an orchard full of fruit not just a forest full of trees. So he wants to take this believer, and he wants to train them in righteousness and and use them for the kingdom and show his glory through them and bring love to the world through this person. But that requires maturity. And they don't like that. So instead, their heart, every time they're invited towards maturity, their heart fills up with cares and worries and anxieties, and they're worried what will happen? Well, I'm going to lose my comfort. What about my security? What about you know, my pleasures? What about money? Jesus says, okay, listen, take up your cross and follow me. Go into the world. Make disciples of all nations. I've given you a gift, a talent, and people to serve. Go to my body of believers and serve them with your talent. I have set aside good deeds at the beginning of time just for you. Now go do them. And this person responds, But Lord, that's not comfortable. What about my retirement? What about my stuff? Won't that cost me money? This seems pretty risky, Lord. I'm not sure. I really like being, you know, healthy and comfortable and warm and well-rested. Plus, every time someone sticks their neck out around here, someone smacks them down like a game of whack-a-mole. No way I'm doing that. I'm just going to keep my head down. Stop stop asking me to serve in areas where it's not, you know, easy. Stop convicting my heart to do these difficult things. Stop telling me to use my gifts in ways that are going to get me in trouble. Thanks for saving me. That's really all I want from you. Other than that, just leave me alone. I'll let you know if I need anything. 
Do you see yourself in this? During this time, have your fears, your concerns, your worries caused you to tell God you don't want to obey Him because it's too risky? Has God told you to share something? And you said, nah, I might need that. And then kept it. Has God told you to serve somewhere? And you said, you know what, that's going to put me at risk. That might get me in trouble. So, mm, no. As the stress and the anxiety grew, did you start clinging a little harder to worldly pleasures, worldly riches, worldly comforts, because you were afraid you might lose them? Maybe you lost out on a real blessing because of that. God was inviting you to something great. And you said, nah, I'll hold on to this. He was inviting you to bear some real spiritual fruit and you missed out on it. God wanted to use you in a special way, but out of concern for yourself... You overwhelmed your trust and obedience in God and the thorns just choked you out. Cares, riches, pleasures, comfort. You want to trade that for heavenly fruit? You want to trade that for being told, well done, my good and faithful servant? Why would you trade that? Store up your treasures in heaven, not here. Now the final soil is the good soil. People who hear the word of God hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's a rich description. I love that description. They hear it. They grip it. They, they bind it to their life. They glue it to their souls in their honest or noble or beautiful and good heart. Their heart is honest. They're not lying to themselves. They're not lying to anyone else. It's, it's beautiful. It's unmarred by the blackness of sin because they ask Jesus to wash it clean. All of it. He opened all the doors in the house and said, Jesus, whatever you don't like, take it. Right? Clean it all. It's a good heart, an honest heart. Good means actively positive. No rocks, no thorns. They fully repented, totally turned their lives over to Jesus. And, and every time God shows them another rock, shows them a weed, the Holy Spirit convicts them. Their response is, oh, I don't want that there. Oh, look, okay, we'll get rid of that rock. Because they know they want good soil. Here's the thing. Good soil people aren't special. They're not special. I recently watched a movie about Mr. Rogers. Wonderful Christian man, I admire and respect. At one point, a reporter is doing a piece on Mr. Rogers, and he turns to his wife, Joanne, and says, he must be some kind of saint. And her reply was profound. She said, I don't like that word. If you make him out to be a saint, then nobody can get there. They'll think he's some otherworldly creature. If you make him out to be a saint, people might not know how hard he worked. In other words, Mr. Rogers wasn't special or otherworldly. It's just that he was obedient to Jesus. 
Jesus did this mighty work in his life, changed his heart, cleansed his sin, broke the curse, and Mr. Rogers thanked Jesus by obeying, believing what Jesus said. He took God's word seriously. He applied it to his life as a servant of God. He just said what he thought Jesus wanted him to say. He did what he believed Jesus wanted him to do. He reacted the way he believed Jesus wanted him to react. He forgave as he knew Jesus wanted him to forgive. His soil took the seed of the gospel and God was able to produce much fruit through him. But he wasn't special. Jesus doesn't want special people. Think back to the motley crew following him. They were not special. Think of the motley crew that makes up most Christian churches. He doesn't have a type or a favorite kind of person. All Jesus requires is for someone to hear the word, believe it, and humbly obey it. And he does all the work. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's risky. Sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes you don't feel like it. The question is, how receptive is your heart to trusting Jesus? If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at artofthechristianninja.com where you'll find more messages, free books, and all of Pastor Al's social media links. If you appreciate this message, please consider sharing it with your friends. If you want to keep these blogs and podcasts coming, consider helping out financially by supporting us through our new Patreon page. You can find the link on the website. Pastor Al Desjardins speaks at Beckwith Baptist Church in Carleton Place, Ontario, Canada. If you have any questions, want to learn more, or just see what Pastor Al is up to, head over to artofthechristianninja.com. While you're there, hit the subscribe button, use the search bar to find lots of other topics, watch some sermon videos, and even download all of Pastor Al's books for free. Thank you so much for listening, and have a blessed week.